evening, sport fans. It's... Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. That's another show. There's the story of Myron Man. An aluminum can containing a sugar-free abomination. That's a recyclable aluminum. And I might add recyclable sugar-free abomination. Yes, indeed. Can you imagine... The, uh, can, just can't you imagine W.C. Fields drinking new sugar-free Dr. Pepper? Or Tab. Mm-hmm. I can see him, you know, mixing his tab with four gallons of bourbon. You know, uh, while we're on the subject of, uh, uh, you know, modern man's dilemma, I'd like to uh, salute a man tonight who laid a terrible boo-boo here the other night. A man told a circuit court jury in St. Louis that he could not possibly have been guilty of robbing the Three Piper Lounge last summer, as on that night he was definitely certain he was home watching the St. Louis Cardinals baseball game on TV. And he knows. And the reason he knows is because his favorite pitcher, Bob Gibson, was on the mound. And uh, you've never missed Bob Gibson pitching. Well, they went back and checked, and it turned out that Rick Wise was pitching that night. And uh, Mr. Gibson did not pitch for another four days. And uh, he was found guilty and is now in a slam. Now, I, I think that is playing just dirty pool with a guy. I mean, to check on his statements like that. I mean, <laughs> that shows basic distrust of your fellow man. Now, the question is not whether he was right or wrong or whether he was sneaking and lying or right. The thing is, we checked on him, and I think this is terrible. It's bad. You, know, you, can, you can tell I'm in a moderately foul mood here tonight. That's right. I wrote and sent me a note that uh, says, Shepard, can you send us your plans for a carbide cannon? Well, uh, yes, I could do that. Now, I don't know whether you... Have you ever heard of a carbide cannon? You know, what is it, a carbide... You don't know what a carbide cannon... You must have led one hell of a sheltered youth. I, I, I really honestly believe that there are two kinds of kids that grow up in this world, and they wind up with very different views of life. There's the kid whose daddy buys him everything at FAO Schwartz. You know, he, he's, he's the kid. <laughs> In fact, if you've seen kits lately, you know, the kind of kits you buy, model airplane, car kits and all that, kits are getting so, well, they're not even kits anymore, you know. They just hook together, you know. They're so simple that it takes about the eight and a half milliseconds for, for a duck to put together. And uh, so everything has to be, you know, kind of uh, prepackaged. It makes it a lot easier, that's true. And... Uh, but you don't learn much about life when you do that. Uh, when when you have something all nicely done for you like that, and so you don't know what a carbide cannon is. Hmm. You're not curious. Okay, we won't tell you that. But uh, I might add that if uh, you just blew it, you just blew it. I'll just say that because if you if you knew what a carbide cannon is, the blush of excitement would come to your cheeks. Because a carbide cannon can rock the neighborhood. It ain't just a casual thing. I, 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 re I remember. Uh, well, a carbide cannon is is a cannon. It's a cannon. You know, a cannon. Boom, cannon. That kind of cannon. It's not a cannon that plays a bad TV show. This is a cannon, cannon. And um, 
how we got into the carbide cannon business at one point in my Boy Scout troop is a story which has no relation, you know, it is not relevant to this current discussion, except to suffice it to say that one afternoon, instead of tying knots, messing around with sheepshank knots, and making neckerchief slides and all that other kind of sappy stuff that you do when you're a Boy Scout, Frank Simonson, better known as Scott Simonson, suggested we make a carbide cannon. Now, a carbide cannon involves the use of a container that is airtight, such as, if you can get yourself, say, a one-gallon paint can with the kind of uh, top, you know, that you put on, you can make it very tight. Well, with the use of proper chemicals and the use of proper technique, you can make that little son of a gun go off with a sound that they would hear from here to Trenton. You could shatter windows for blocks around using a carbide can, and it's reusable. And it's uh, cheap, fun to operate, and it, as a matter of fact, they claim was one of the reasons, uh, uh, it was one of the uh, inspirations for the late Dr. Einstein in his development of the atom bomb. That the <laughs> well, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to come out and tell you how to make one of these things, because... I could see a sudden rash of carbide cannons around here, and, and uh, you know, guys getting arrested, people blowing themselves up. But uh, we started out with a small carbide cannon. We, we, we began, to, uh, you see, I, I must say this, that escalation is one of the basic principles of human nature. And that's a, that can be a problem, escalation of everything. Uh, the human mind will not accept the fact that the multiplicity is not necessarily a virtue. Now, now you can see it on all hands. You see a guy with a million dollars. Now, you think that a guy with a million dollars would be happy. That's a pile of dough. That's a lot. You pile one million dollar bills, one on top of the other, and that's going to go all the way to the third floor. That's a lot of money. But that's... that's that, 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 have you ever heard a millionaire say, I've got enough? Rare. He wants more. That's the multiplicity fallacy at work. If I'm happy with a million, think how happy I'll be with two million. Think how happy I'll be with 20 million. And he goes on and on. You see this multiplicity fallacy operating in many, many areas. Uh, guy says, gee, I had a fantastic night with that girl. Unbelievable. So next thing you know, he tries to get every girl conceivable into his pad, right? A multiplicity problem. By the end of the <laughs> of the 397th affair, he is insatiable. At which point, then they begin to call it the Don Juan syndrome, and that's something else. We will not take you into postgraduate work here tonight yet. That's for the next semester. Now, uh, I uh, I do say the multiplicity syndrome is uh, this is a this this can be a, a curse because it hits all of us. How many times they even got beer songs about it like that? When you're having more than one, the whole shaper, shaper is the one bear to have when you're having more than one. Which means when you're going to go in to tie one on and you're going to drink 422 beers, well, that's the multiplicity syndrome again. One is not enough. You've got to line them up. The more you have, the better most people. The average guy, uh, he prides himself on the... On say uh, the number of times 
that he had fights in bars. One should have been enough <laughs> with the way that one worked out. But uh, nevertheless, the multiplicity problem is always with us. And tonight, uh, we would like to uh, we would like to tell you that the escalation principle was evident even at that time. Now we started out. It, it, you can see it in all phases of human endeavor. Here, Frank, uh, what was his name? Oh, I know, Orville. Orville was the short right brother. All right, he was the one with the bad temper. Okay, Orville and Wilbur messed around for years trying to figure out some way to get an airplane in, in the air, and they did it. They got, and one of them hung on. Who was the one that took the first flight? You curious? Laying right on this thing, holding on to it, and they're steering it down, and it flew right out there. Kitty Hawk, about a couple of hundred feet. It's a fantastic flight. And that was enough. Years went by, and now we've got Fat Albert. And I can just see by the year 2000, we're going to have airplanes that will cover half of the state of Delaware. I mean, for why? The multiplicity syndrome. And incidentally, people tend to think that the more people that an airplane carries, the safer it is. That's also part of the fallacy. Somehow, if you can get an airplane that could carry 12,000 people, you feel safer than one that carries two. Oh, nothing could be further from the truth, friends. <laughs> it's part of the great fallacy. And people also apply this to their cars. The bigger the car, the safer the car. Another part of the multiplicity syndrome. And the fallacy is galloping right behind it. So, uh, you know, here we were Boy Scouts. We started out with a small carbide cannon, roughly the size. In fact, it was a half-tight can of paint. We got, we got a paint can, cleaned it all out, has a good tight lid on it, and it made a real nice cannon. Boom! It would go. Actually, it's more of a boom. It, it, it sounds like a true cannon. It, boom! It would go. Well, within... Hours after our first successful experiments with the little half, <laughs> with the little half, uh, half pint can of of uh, paint, we were already experimenting with gallon cans, and uh, successfully, garage doors would cave in uh, after the first three or four giant blasts of our full gallon can. Well, what's the next step? Simon says, that's great. Fantastic. All right. Somebody found a beautiful 32-gallon uh, garbage can with a tight lid, and that we were now moving into the atom bomb class. <laughs> I don't want I, I to burden you this. Of course, we ran into what always happens when you start to escalate. Other factors begin to become important that were minor in the beginning. For example, when they blew off that first atom bomb, they didn't think in terms of fallout, did they? They thought in terms of concussion. They said concussion is fantastic, deadly. You know, the earliest days at White Plains. It was only later when they began to make these things bigger and bigger and bigger until, they, you know, there were 12 million tons of TNT equivalent that fallout became a problem. The stuff, the, the, the junk that came out of it was, was even more of a difficulty than the original blast. Well, that's what began to affect us. That in the early days, when we began to make the first carbide cannons, 
the, the, the tensile strength of the material itself was not important. That the top of the cannon, which properly was the noise-producing thing. See, when you'd set off the cannon, boom, it would blow the top off. That was what it did, theoretically, and it did do that in the early cannons. But as we increased the size of the cannon, the actual tensile strength of the material itself came into play, something we had not figured out. We had not even taken into account. And so when that day happened, when, when Simonson arrived with a brand-new zinc-coated 32-gallon garbage can, which he had stolen from behind somebody's house, and we made a super carbide cannon, the tensile strength situation took over. And also, of course, uh, again, escalating, uh, escalating uh, uh, the use of the larger can meant using more chemicals. And we now had a carbide cannon that stood about four feet high and that uh, was about three and a half feet around, a big garbage can. And the day that thing went off is still a legendary day. In fact, when that son of a gun went off, it, it, it went off. Have you ever been involved in something that's, that you, you were part of and it got so out of hand that you, did ha you had no way to control it? and you got scared. Have you, have you ever been really frightened in your life with something you've started? Can you imagine how Dr. Frankenstein felt? Nobody thinks much about how Frankenstein himself must have felt when, uh, you know, he whipped up that goodie and uh, it's walking around hitting people on the head and Igor's running behind it with them pipes and all that stuff. How he must have felt, what he has leashed upon the world. Now, he had a brazen and out. He's not going to admit. He's not going to say... Uh, uh, you know, he, he uh, oh my God, what did I do? He brazened it out. He tried to pretend that he was going to aid mankind. You remember, he says, I am going to bring out the, we are bringing back the dead. No, no, he, he must have had fears that he's done something bad right at that point. Yeah, Frankenstein. Speaking of, that reminds me, this is WOR, New York. Yes, if it fits, it fits. Not much you can say about it. My God, what a Frankenstein. Hey, guess who was in here yesterday? Half a while, the cop. Yeah, he always up for Valentine and says, Connor, I come in and say goodbye. So I say, how come? Well, it seems Heffelmeyer is walking his beat when he runs into this guy pulling a cart loaded with 23 cases of Valentine beer. So he asks the guy what he's doing with that much Valentine. And the guy tells him, Officer, I just love that beer so much. When I find it on sale, I buy it all up. Well, Heffelmeyer, he's still suspicious. So he says, Okay, if you love Valentine that much, what do the three rings stand for? And the guy says, That's easy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So, well, that does it. And sure enough, they find out the beer's been swiped from O'Hara's delicatessen. And on account of what he's done, Heffelmeyer gets promoted to lieutenant, which is why I won't be walking and beat around here anymore. Some world, huh? Hey, let me get you another Valentine. On the house. Yeah, let's see. Valentine beer is a product of the Falstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, and other beautiful, majestic cities of our land. Well, let's see. Uh, yeah, here we've got uh, Mountain Valley Water. And, uh, by the way, Mountain Valley water is, uh, it comes from Hot Springs, Arkansas. 
and it has been enjoyed for over 100 years, constant popularity. It's great water. Uh, only Mountain Valley is in demand across the nation. It's a nationwide thing, and the mellow taste and satisfying effect should convince you that Mountain Valley water is exactly right for you. You know, there's a growing trend in this country to drink uh, bottled water, which has been very popular in Europe for years, but it's getting to be very big these days. So try it with a good one, Mountain Valley, for a free folder and price list, or to have uh, Mountain Valley water delivered to you, just mail a postcard here to WOR and write H2O on the front of it. <laughs> That's WOR New York, 10018. That's Mountain Valley water. And now we have, it says reading the French accent. Do I have a, a one full minute here? One. If you like to enjoy the French wines with your meals, I think it's too complicated and too expensive, you should think again. It says pronounced shink again. All you have to remember about French wine is one name, Alexis Lachine. The Alexis Lachine Company selects the right wines, the reds, the whites, the rosés, and they are poured then into gracious, curvaceous, distinctive bottles to grace your elegant table in Queens and Flushing. So, I would like to suggest that you pick a bottle of magnificent Alexis Lachine wine. It's imported by Bass Charrington Vintners of New York. And now, that little ding-dong. Hey, uh, are you a uh, Army Navy store cuckoo fan? You know, Army Navy type stores. I think this is really basically a masculine thing. And if you're a an Army Navy store fan. I'd like to suggest uh, that you visit Prozies. It's a great Army-Navy store at 121 Main Street in Hackensack or Prozies for Men and Boys at 35 Ridge Road in North Arlington over in Jersey. And uh, they're a specialist for sports apparel and camping equipment. If you're a camping cuckoo, they have all the famous brands in every department. Sleeping bags, lanterns, and tents. They have uh, trailblazers, for example, the A-Line. They have uh, Coleman stuff. And for sports apparel, they have career club shirts, Lee slacks, and they've been in business since 1923, 50 years. It's a great store. So visit Prozies Army-Navy store at 121 Main Street in Hackensack or Prozies for men and boys at 35 Ridge Road in North Arlington. And it's their anniversary, so they're going to lay something good on you. That's Prozies in Hackensack or North Arlington. You don't have to know a lot about wines to know the time for Dubonnet is before. Before, that's the time to think about some Dubonnet to drink. Before's the proper time of day to have yourself a Dubonnet. Before, yeah, before. It's the time before for Dubonnet. Dubonnet. Some people can't spell it. And there's hardly a soul who knows it's an aperitif. But don't let that scare you away. All you need to know is this. Dubonnet's the wine that's made to go before lunch, before dinner. Just pour it over the rocks, add a twist, soda if you like. That's Dubonnet before, made to make what comes after that much better. Before, yeah, before. The time before for Dubonnet. Dubonnet Company, New York, New York. Do you know that WOR New York started out as a two-and-a-half-watt phonograph amplifier? Did you know that? 
many, many centuries ago with a little antenna on the top of it, and they played Reza Stevens' records through it. And then they occasionally put on a Loretz Melchior record. It was only two and a half watts, and it was bought as a kit from Heathkit. And day by day it grew until now, my God almighty, where is it ever going to end? 500 million watts squatting right in the middle of the AM dial like a gigantic fat toad, 24 hours a day, spawning, who knows what fallout. We have no idea what we're doing to your heads. And we have not yet considered this. And that's exactly what happened in our in our creation of the 32-gallon enormous carbide cannon. And the day that all of us hid back of, of Doppler's garage... <laughs> had started this cannon. See, once you started, you ever heard of a carbide cannon, Earl? These guys never heard of it. Look at them. They're looking at me with a dumb look on their face. I'm amazed at the ignorance of people around. I'm, uh, you see, we're getting, we're getting corroboration in there. That's right. I am not inventing the concept of a carbide cannon, and I want to tell you, if you make a big carbide cannon and you blow that thing off, it can be heard from midtown Manhattan to some of the more northerly provinces of Maine. And I'm not kidding you. Well, we were innocent. We started with a small one, and we kept building them bigger until that day, that, that, that absolutely uh, shattering day in more ways than one, when me and, and Scott Simonson, uh, there were, I'll tell you who else was there. Frank Paswinski was there. If you want to know who the guilty were, yep, he was there. Uh... Yep, Schwartz was there, Stanley Roper was there, and Roper, by the way, denied it for years. Uh, <laughs> he was there. There was about nine of us back of Doppler's garage, and poor Doppler wasn't even there. That's That was a... See, there's almost always, under every circumstance, there's almost always the innocent get hurt. You see what's going on in Watergate. There's probably a lot of guys in Watergate that are getting fired and are totally innocent. Who said, Water, Watergate, Watergate, isn't that some kind of a funny bed? You No, get out of here. We're not talking about water beds. It's Watergate. You're fired. You're involved. So there's always the innocent. They get it. And so it was with Doppler. And the reason we picked Doppler and the back of Doppler's garage was because Doppler's garage was made out of brick. It was the only brick garage in the neighborhood, you know, for miles around. Our, you know, if we ever put that off behind our garage, that garage would have been, you know, just uh, we've been blown four blocks. We had a garage made out of balsa wood, rotted balsa wood. So, <laughs> so on this particular Saturday, most of the worst things that kids do, and I'm afraid this is a, a generalization, a rule of thumb generalization. Do you or do you not agree with me, uh, Jerry? You're a, an ex-kid. Uh, is it your opinion that most of the trouble that kids get into, most of it, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking here uh, on a percentile basis, occurs on Saturdays? You would not say that. Again, your sheltered life comes into play. Uh, I would have to say that uh, that... Forget kids. I would say that more trouble breaks out in bars on Saturday nights than any other night. Well, then why do you think kids are exempt from that? Don't you think kids are human beings like the others, or they suddenly develop the Saturday night syndrome? You're, you, you're, I'm amazed at your naivete. That uh, <laughs> I'm amazed. 
that there's something about Saturday which makes your head do things it wouldn't do on any other day. What do you think Saturday relates to? What do you think the word Saturday means? It comes from an old word of meaning Saturnalia. And what is a Saturnalia? Look it up in your dictionary. That ain't exactly a Sunday school picnic. Saturnalia. Bacchanal. It means the day of Saturn, the day of the devil. <laughs> I mean, Saturnalia. It really does. And so, so Saturday has always done this to people's heads. And, and uh, it, it is a bad day. Bad day. I, 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 even myself. I mean, me. I'm a, I'm a very sober, reliable, industrious human being. And, uh, yes, uh, I, I, deep inside of me, there is a latent Walter Cronkite. A very, very concerned, pompous person. Now, I keep it under check, but uh, I must admit that on Saturdays I have a bad time. I wrestle with the devil quite often. I wrestle with the devil. I remember one, one, uh, one Saturday out on Route 3, I walked into Gino's hamburger joint, and uh, I stood there at the counter for over 15 minutes, wrestled right there in front of everybody with the devil. And I'm not even going to tell you why that happened. It was a terrible sight. And you know the devil comes out with cloven hoofs. He's got a crackling tail. My God, and he's got horns made out of molten lava. And you cannot resist the devil if the devil decides to take over. Because ultimately you turn into the devil. See, that's what... How can you resist yourself? It seems very logical. And the day the devil took over the Moose Patrol of Troop 41 is a day which even to... to right now is a black mark. On the, on the Boy Scouts of America. And it came on a Saturday after we had done our Saturday newspaper collections. See, our troop had a thing going. And that was, every Saturday morning, we would ride around on the truck and collect newspapers. You know, old newspapers, people had a pile of papers in the, in the basement. We would collect newspapers. At which point, we would sell the newspapers. Our truck would, and our our Boy Scout troop, uh, uh, the uh, the head of the troop, the Scout Master, all those guys, we'd take the papers down and sell the papers. We would get maybe 8 or $9 on a Saturday with 15 loads of gigantic stacks of Sunday papers. And we would take the papers down and sell them. Now, what would we do with the money? Well, we would give it to charity. Now, that's really great for a Boy Scout troop to do. Well, that was when God was playing our tune. That was when good was working with us. But good and evil always go together. You agree? They do. And if you don't agree, friends, you have neither seen good nor evil. I'll let that soak in. Anyone who has seen the light of goodness also has seen the dark, red, crackling, acrid glow of evil. If you've never seen evil, you've never seen good. Now, this is a difficult philosophical concept for those who are not used to dealing with the philosophy of yin and yang, the philosophy of good and evil walk in tandem. Yes. Let that soak out there for a while. And all morning, the Moose Patrol, me and Scott Simonson, Stanley Roper, Jack Morton, Schwartz, Flick, all of that motley band bent our back to God's way. 
collecting newspapers for the poor. Having a great time. Jumping off the truck, running up, picking up the papers, putting them on the truck, running around hollering, eating popsicles. Having a great Saturday morning. You have done those things, haven't you? I see. I see. Were you born enclosed in a plastic capsule and have not yet emerged? Is that it? But uh, we had a hell of a Saturday morning. And so the troop knocked off for lunch, which was a disastrous thing to do, as later events proved. Mr. Gordon, our scoutmaster, says, what do you say we knock off for lunch, gang? And uh, everybody says, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how they do, see? He said, okay, we'll meet back here, back at the school, at 2.30. And we'll go out and collect some more papers. And then after that, we'll have a weenie roast. We'll have a weenie roast at 4 o'clock. And I'm buying a weenies. Any of you guys want to bring buns? That's up to you. I'm buying a weenies. And everybody, yeah, right. Have we done that? Life would have been far simpler for many of us today. Had we done it. But instead, this is what transpired. The Moose Patrol in a body, and our patrols generally hung around together. The Moose Patrol in a body went down to a place called John's. John's was a hot dog joint. And uh, we went down to John's, which we went to John's only when we really didn't have much scratch. Uh, ordinarily, when we had any dough, we went to the Red Rooster. But uh, this was the John's day. So we went down to John's. We were sitting around at John's. And in came Scott Simonson. And Scott had not been present at the paper-collecting ceremonies of the morning. Scott was a member of our, our patrol, but he was not in the paper-collecting ceremonies. So he walks in, and uh, Schwartz says, What are you doing, Scott? How come you weren't collecting papers today? And Scott said, I was busy. And with that, uh, Schwartz says, Doing what? And he says, well, I'm making a car carbide cannon. Well, you know, this awakened somewhat of an interest uh, in the uh, in the patrol. We had all been involved in building carbide cannons. In fact, we were, that was our, we had thought perhaps it would, might be a tremendous patrol uh, display at the science fair that the Boy Scouts were having that spring. You know, we make the ultimate carbide cannon. It'll blow the roof right off the school. So uh, we, we, you know, immediately there was a little interest. So somebody says, uh, what, what kind are you making, Scott? He says, I'm making the biggest one that I ever heard of. I'm making a big one. Schwartz at that point says, how big? He says, well, I found a 32-gallon garbage can that has a tight lid, and I'm sealing it with rubber. Schwartz said, rubber? What kind of rubber? He said, well, I got this rubber stuff that they use to, to fix the leaks on the roof at our house. And he said, we had a can of that stuff down in the basement. It looks like tar. You heat it up, and you can seal anything with it. And I'm going to seal the top on this thing with this stuff. That's an interesting concept. Because, you know, sealing the top is important in a carbide can, and I will not... Now, to give you a brief footnote as to what a carbide cannon actually is. There are certain chemicals when water is added to them will produce various gases. You are aware of this. Now some of these gases are explosive. Others are not. 
Uh, the uh, idea is to get one that is. When a, uh, a, a light is applied to the gas that accrues, when uh, uh, it is kept in a tight container, you must understand, causes a loud boom. This is an old... Uh, <laughs> this is a genuine basic uh, uh, theory of uh, the explosives. So uh, I will not tell you what chemicals, because I don't want to start a whole rash of this, you know, blowing up the city and all that stuff. But we knew how to make these things. Well, now, we were not actually blowing things up. It was the sound itself that was the exciting thing that we produced. We, they produce a fantastic boom. So at that point, somebody says, well, let's take a look at it, Scott. And it began to go downhill from that minute. The entire patrol, after having finished its hamburgers and junk, trooped out, turned right, and went about four blocks down the street to Scott Simonson's house. And on the back porch, Scott had his, his zinc garbage can laid out and all his stuff, and he was working. So we all started to work on it. And believe me, the whole, the, the devil takes over quickly. Within 30 seconds, forget the newspapers. We are deeply involved in building a carbide cannon. It's just like mankind himself, deeply involved in building a cobalt bomb. And we did not realize what we were about to produce, except that the building itself was important. Now, do you, you, you see the parallel? That you get so involved in building something, it's just like, uh, you know, the scientists must still feel rotten about creating the atom bomb. But the idea, the challenge of doing it, makes you do it. After that, well, what they do with it is uh, one of those problems I cannot, uh, I cannot deal with. But if you hadn't built it in the first place, they couldn't have done anything with it. So there's, you know, that argument goes on. So within a half an hour, or maybe three quarters of an hour, we had produced a carbide cannon of awesome dimensions. Awesome dimensions. And we got a little, just a little wary about it, as to where to set it off, because it was big. And Simonson said, you're not going to set it off in the backyard here. We cannot do it here. And there was a lot of talk about a vacant lot. And uh, somebody said, well, yeah, but if you put it off in the vacant lot, then uh, it won't make as big a boom. That's quite right. If a boom is reverberated from a wall, it produces a bigger boom. You understand this principle, right? It's like if you put a PA system in Yankee Stadium, it's going to sound a hell of a lot louder than if you put it on a, in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Why? Because the walls reverberate. We knew enough about dynamics to understand that. So somebody suggested Doppler's Garage, which had a brick wall, which we often used to play various games, you know, bouncing balls off the wall. We make a line up there, who can jump the highest on the wall, all that stuff. So we carry this thing about eight of us carry this thing around back of Dopplers. Here it is, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we set it up back of the wall, right next to the wall to get the boom, and we put it at an angle, knowing full well <laughs> that if this thing went off straight up in the air, you know, they'll tell it what. So we put it at an angle. We propped bricks around it. Doppler was not even home, poor Doppler. He was not even home. There was nobody there. And so we messed around with this thing, got it all set up. And Simonson, at that point, said, who's going to set it off? 
so we flipped. Right down the entire patrol. Jack Morton won. Jack Morton always won. Jack Morton was six feet seven inches tall at the age of nine. And by the time he was ten, he was getting he was getting offers from the NBA already. You know, that kind of guy. Elegance, beautiful features, Jack Morton. So he won. And we laid, each one of us laid down next to the garage. And, and, and Morton crept around the back of the garage, ready to set this thing off. Went around the side, and he set the chemicals in motion. Now, a carbide bomb is not lit. You don't walk up to a carbide bomb and light it like a fuse. It is a chemical reaction that is started, almost like an atom bomb. And he put the chemicals in, threw the water in, put the top on, and about three guys run around and they immediately start putting the, 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 the rubberoid cement, which glue it's instantly sealed this thing. And we all ran around the back of the garage and waited. We were just sitting there waiting, just laying down there waiting. And I can remember the scene. We're all laying there. What's it going to go off? Hey, Sky, hey, hey, Scott. Look around the edge and see if it's okay. We're waiting there. Waiting. And it just seemed to grow, grow. We could see that thing. It's starting to glow. It's starting to glow. It's getting bigger and bigger in our minds. And then... Oh, my God! The ground rocked! And you can hear it echoing and echoing and re-echoing and echoing again from the houses for miles around. And you can hear the sound of glass breaking, tinkling, people screaming, people running out on the back porches. We took off like a bird. Sirens began to sound in the distance. People calling the... There's always somebody that calls the cops. There's every neighborhood has about 15 ladies with blue hair who instantly call the police at any, at any and all opportunities. Well, that carbide cannon went off. Now, I... I, I it's hard to... to, to uh, to exaggerate this, for those of you who know anything about carbide cannons, you know that I'm not kidding. For those of you who don't know anything about them, you think, oh, ho, Shepard's exaggerating again. No way. This thing went off with a roar, and I might add with a destructive power, that uh, I suspect must have awed Oppenheimer and those guys when they were hiding in the bunkers at White Sands. The top of that can was never found. The top just simply blew off, and it just it just disappeared in a blue cloud, going rapidly over Mattingly's department store, and it was gone. The can itself split, and this is something we had never taken into account. It just split open, and, and it literally disintegrated. Shrapnel flew all over the neighborhood, cut down clotheslines. <laughs> one of them, one of them hit the side of somebody's Pontiac about 
about a half a block away and peeled off about four pounds of very expensive paint. And all over the neighborhood, pieces of 32-gallon zinc garbage can descended from the heavens, red hot. And we were gone. Now, kids have a way of moving. And I remember running down an alley with Schwartz, and behind me was Scott Simonson. The three of us went under Schwartz's back porch. There was a latticework back porch. And we sat down there for about an hour and a half, waiting for it all to cool down. And you could hear sirens going off and, and people talking. And we decided to, to split up. Don't hang together. Split up completely. Go. Have any of you ever participated in a major crime? I didn't say watched one. I said participated. It's very different. Uh, at first, there's a feeling of exhilaration. But then immediately sets in a curious kind of reaction. Uh, it's not necessarily fear. It's a curious reaction. I can't really describe it. But we had to get, we had to get away from each other. I didn't want to see Schwartz. I didn't want to see Scott, any of them. And so I went back down through backyards, and I came back up the back porch and into our kitchen. I walk in the kitchen, and it's Saturday, remember. The old man's home from work. And he's sitting there at the kitchen table. He's doing something with a screwdriver. And he looks up, and he says, Hey, did you hear the explosion? I said, What explosion? He said, well, Didn't you hear about Doppler's garage blowing up? I said, No, no. He said, Well, I don't know how the hell you missed it. He said, Boy, everybody in the neighborhood heard it. I saw me. I, I, I didn't hear nothing. Dopper's garage? What do you mean blew up? He said, I don't know. He said, something blew up in the back of the garage because it blew in the bricks in the back of the garage. Something was out in the back, just blew up. He said, boy, the police were there and everything. He said, where were you? I said, well, I was down at the ballpark. He said, well, where were you doing down there? Playing he said, you must have heard it down at the ballpark. He said, no, me and Schwartz and Scott and all of us, we were down at the ballpark playing ball. We didn't hear anything. Gee whiz, was anybody hurt? says, no, but boy, was it sure lucky. Whatever it was, blew up. It flew out all over the neighborhood. Stuff was flying. says, one, one, uh, something went over in Mrs. Anderson's yard. A chunk of metal or something. I said, holy smokes. He says, boy, I don't know. He said, you never know. There must be something out there. Whew, wow. And for weeks, all they talked about in the neighborhood was the explosion back of Doppler's garage. And people begin to suspect that Doppler himself was storing something in the garage. Something illicit, and it went up. Other people said, you know, there must be some kind of fanatics or something around here. They're just blowing up people's houses. We never mentioned it. And, they, and the, to this day, uh, you know, that once in a while, when people talk around the old neighborhood of things that happened in ancient times, they talk about the mysterious explosion. Nobody ever got to the bottom of it. You know what? Come to think of it, though, that would have made one hell of a science exhibit for True 41, you know? The time the True 41 blew up the camporee. <laughs> Destroyed Troop 12. You know, with one swell hoop. And the five kids got the explosives merit badge. Uh, you know, the demolition merit badge. That is demolition in action. And so each one of us walked through life with something on his conscience. Now, some of us will admit it. We'll honestly come right out and say, yeah, I did it. I did something. 
You know, funny thing about Simonson, Simonson after that would not even admit to us that he had to have anything to do with it. He was out there hanging on the, on the lid while we were putting the stuff on. See, that's the true criminal. The true criminal gets to the point where he denies even being alive. Can't get me. I'm not even alive. I wasn't even born yet. Yes. Good and evil march in tandem. Boy Scout Troop 41 was doing the work of the Lord, collecting them papers and doing the work of the devil that afternoon, blowing up Doppler's garage. And they somehow are interconnected. This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for John Wingate and Night.